1: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Democrats don't know how to talk. Democrats are unable to take things that would make 90% of people's lives better and sell them to 51% of people, whereas Republicans are able to take things that make 1% of people's lives better and sell them to 51% of people.
2: Their package of appeals is more potent than Democrats. Like, maybe we need to try and take lessons from uh, some of the appeals they're making and so one of the things I said on the debate stage was like, look, you know, one of the, the best sell for fixing healthcare in this country is like right now, it's terrible for anyone who wants to start a business switch jobs like do anything
1: different. We, we already got the people we've got. The issue is the people we don't have. Right. And we have a sense of what some of those people's values are. Why don't you hear Democrats saying, when we sent our boys to Normandy? Right, they didn't leave one person down on the battlefield. They ran back, they put themselves in danger, they picked, that's that's what we do. That's who we are as Americans. And when I'm president, that's what we're going to do on the battlefield of healthcare.
3: All right guys, on today's episode, we talk about the CEO summit with the CEOs of the four biggest tech companies going to Congress. And we set up this conversation with Anand with some comments about our system today, why philanthropy is not working and how we restructure everything from the ground up. It's a long episode and is worth every freaking second. I was riveted by this conversation. Andrew's too humble to talk about how awesome it was, but it was awesome. Enjoy it guys. (laughs) The four CEOs, of the biggest tech companies in the world, just went and basically got grilled by Congress. And Andrew, you watched the whole thing. I'd like to summarize it for Yank Speaks listeners and why they should care about this, if you think that's relevant.
2: The summary to me was it's about damn time. Uh, uh, But what I said was that really each of these companies needs its own hearing. I mean, they they each have their own specific set of issues. There certainly were some themes that came out from the hearings, um, one thing I will say that I found humorous was that a Republican congressman was like, why do my emails go to spam? Are you like anti-conservative? And then a Democratic congresswoman <laughs> was like, my my emails go to spam too. Like, we all go to spam because we're spam. Which I thought was funny. Um, so uh, to me, the Republicans being so focused on what they perceived to be anti-conservative bias, I thought was... Um, a waste of time honestly it, it, like and and that yeah. that exchange i just said <laughs> that, like summed it up for me <laughs> where <there> were, uh, <laughs> that it, that many of the these platforms uh, have been actually very conservative friendly relatively speaking um you know facebook actually is yeah. a boycott right now um in part because people dislike um the decisions they're making the most ridiculous stuff there were a few things that i thought were ridiculous number one is each company took great pains to paint itself as like a scrappy upstart uh it was ridiculous where it was like facebook opened up by saying like oh we're not the fastest growing app uh tiktok is it's like yeah <laughs> <laughs> like or just like cherry picking <laughs> ridiculous categories uh, uh, um and saying right. you know like 650 billion dollar tech companies somehow like this this like uh um upstart that's worried about Uh, like these up and comers Um, and then when the testimony came out that they bought Instagram uh, and the Instagram founders were like hey if we don't sell to them they're going to go into destroy mode uh, it was totally ridiculous that that Zuckerberg was like no (laughs) because it's totally clear that they were going to rip off whatever features in sight uh, and go after them if they didn't buy them Um, and so the fact that the Instagram founders knew that is not Uh, I mean, like, I would have appreciated if Zuckerberg had come clean and been like, of course we're going to, like, try and destroy, like, uh, you know, our our competitor by by taking their. Yeah, whatnot. Except, you know, you're not allowed to say that. Um, uh, On the Amazon side, they focused a lot on what was happening to third party sellers, um, which is a problem because it does seem like Amazon gets a lot of data and sometimes either advantages their own goods or even just, like, realizes, hey, people really like um like this type of item so let's just provide them this item ourselves uh you know like that like that that does Mm -hmm. seem like it happens an awful lot um on amazon but to to me the missed opportunity was some of the anti-competitive stuff they've done with things like diapers.com where uh diapers.com was up and coming selling diapers right and left and amazon was like hey let's buy you and diapers.com was like no and then what did amazon do Just sold diapers for like, you know, steep losses and like nickels on the dollar. And then diapers.com started hemorrhaging. And then diapers.com was like, okay, assholes, I guess we're going to have to sell to you. Um, And so no one sheds any tears because I think diapers.com got like six or 700 million, which at the time uh, was a lot of money. Uh, But that was the kind of thing that Amazon does. Uh, And so it's the third party reseller issues, yes, but it's also the fact that they do have a, a, a near. A monopoly in online retail. Um, so those are some of the big issues that came mm-hmm. up in the the hearing. The to me the most interesting thing was it, it seemed to me that uh, there's going to be some kind of antitrust action coming down the pike. Uh, and then they missed a lot of the data issues, which in a way I understood because um, there aren't laws concerning that in the same way. Uh, you know, this was essentially an antitrust right. hearing. Uh, But it seemed to me like we can expect some kind of antitrust enforcement or action where Facebook and Amazon are concerned. And then Google and Apple, it's much less clear.
3: Right. So for context, everybody, it was it was Zuckerberg of Facebook, Tim Cook of Apple, Sundar Pichai from Google and then Jeff Bezos of Amazon. Um, So and to me, the Republicans argued the conservative censorship, which I think was a losing argument, and the Democrats went just antitrust, like you guys are monopoly. What was crazy to me, and so you've talked a lot about Facebook, but I'm curious your thoughts a little more on unpacking what your thoughts are on Amazon. So what they seem to do, like the diapers.com example is good, but the other one that's fascinating to me is they let's say they're selling flour tortillas on Amazon. Or food's probably a bad example. They're selling headphones. And there's three competitors on there or there's one product on there and there's different data coming in and how many people are buying them and at what price and why people are turning away and they have all this data and then they can take that data and then make their own product at the perfect price, at the perfect in the perfect positioning and sell it next to all that other stuff so they know and they know in real time they get A, B, C, D, E, F test that and they know in real time where people are going to convert and it's it'd be one thing if and Jeff Bezos was saying, "Well, and there's no rules for other retailers to do this," and that is true. But Macy's or whoever you want to say he's comparing himself to doesn't have one that real-time data. And two, there are other retailers for people to go to. But if you want to sell a product, you have to sell it on Amazon now. So, what are your thoughts on one, your thoughts on that in general, and two, how do you regulate how do you regulate that on a, a bigger picture, and um, and then and specifically?
2: The single biggest thing you would do is you'd say, guess what, Amazon, no more house brands. Uh, you know, like that that, that would yeah. be something uh, that would solve the problem for sure. Uh, a- Amazon right. would look at that and say, that's not acceptable because they make a ton of money. Right. Um, and, and so to me, that is a more effective means of enforcing real competition is that you can't have your house brand and run the market at the same time um, if you have a near monopoly on like, online retail, uh, the and, market and, itself.
3: Yeah, the marketplace itself.
2: Yeah, and and so and so Jeff talked about how it's like, oh, we made this controversial decision to like let other sellers into our market, and like uh, you know people thought it was a bad idea, and like we made all these other sellers r- rich, and then you have these sellers saying that it's like a drug, and like as soon as they you get you hooked on Amazon, and then they. Uh, end up destroying you uh just the way heroin does i mean it's very dark some some, some of the stuff that people were saying uh and and i i think that uh amazon did what you would expect them to do amazon's this ruthless efficiency machine they figure out the headphones are selling they're like hey how much those headphones cost what like you know they they got some crazy profit margin um uh, and so then they just uh, started substituting their own goods over time um that that's what's been happening and the best way to solve it for it would be to say look if you run the market then you can't
3: house brand it what do you say to someone right now that's listening to this is like okay yeah these are definitely problems like amazon's gouging us whatever it is but their gut reaction is like boohoo like you're talking about the ceo of diapers.com losing some money you're talking about rich entrepreneurs like losing to the other rich entrepreneur like i i, I think to me this and you've talked about this before like how it cuts into like our creative enterprising nature and hurts entrepreneurs. Like what do you say to someone that, that, that is not in this game? Like how is it affecting our day-to-day lives of, of the average person? Well,
2: this is the tough part, Zach, is that they're probably not, Amazon is not gouging you in that example. Like if anything, yeah. they they're probably slightly undercutting whatever you were gonna pay for those Yeah, headphones. we're
3: benefiting, they're gouging diapers or whatever they're, diapers.com. They're,
2: they're gouging those other headphone manufacturing companies that built yeah, up their yeah. little operations. Uh, And uh, a lot of it is that the small resellers are often very poor, uh, you know, barely making ends Mm -hmm. meet. It's not like a mega corp. It's, you know, in, in many cases, it's It's
3: it's a small headphone shop.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Or even in some cases, an individual, a mom and pop, because some of the resellers on Amazon are, you know, just people, random people Mm -hmm. uh, who, you know, set up a shingle. Uh, But the, net benefit to consumers is high it's one reason why amazon wins so much so the so the pain is a little more indistinct because if you're a consumer you're like i get headphones maybe even cheaper uh and then there's some company i've never heard of that is suffering but who cares i just wanted my headphones uh and Mm -hmm. and so if you're The government, you look at it and say, well, how do I feel about this? Like, what is the purpose here? Is the purpose to have a robust uh, competitive landscape? If that's the case, then this is totally messed up. Um, Is the purpose delivering headphones as cheaply as possible to as many consumers as possible? Then this is okay. Uh, And that's one of the reasons why Amazon has been able to do whatever it wants for so long, because the traditional antitrust framework was around price. Uh, The thought was that if you're anti-competitive, you're gouging people. Um, And Amazon has managed to be anti-competitive and not gouge people. Actually, save us money.
3: Right. I, one of the things you've said before is you can't take the sledgehammer, you need to take the scalpel. And I agree with you. This is generally a positive thing, but you need to have six hours with Apple. You need to have six hours with Google. You know, yeah. Because they're so, you can pay Apple's oranges.
2: Yeah. And, and you probably need a different regulatory framework um, because price is not the answer for sure. Uh, Anti competitive behavior is yes. You can get um, have meaningful. Uh, curbs and limits based on that certainly one of the big things is you have to monitor and uh prevent them from acquiring certain types of businesses or where right. the the reality is that it's very bad for innovation if uh facebook can just gobble up any startup in sight um and you end up with just one social um media network at least for most consumer activities um uh, and, and that stuff's anti competitive for sure. So there, there are certain things that you need to be able to do better.
3: So, last question on this and we'll, we'll move on. But because I imagine a lot of people listening to this did not watch it or maybe watch a recap. I And so, my summary for this is these guys did not look phased at all. They look cool, calm, collected. Do you? So my thought is they went, they did this bullshit, and then they're going to go back to their yacht or their private jet and not give a shit about this going forward. Do you think anything comes of this? Like, are they just like shoe fly? Don't bother me over time. Well,
2: certainly most of them uh, don't think this is going to be a major threat because they haven't seen government actually drop the hammer. Um, I mean, it, yeah, it's been what, 25 years since Microsoft. Um, yeah. But I, I think in this case, there is something coming out of DC. Um, it may not be the hammer. Like it may not be like a break them up uh, fully, um, but there are going to be some antitrust actions coming out, um, particularly towards Facebook and Amazon. Uh, and so like, but you know, if you're worth whatever, 180 billion dollars, like, you know, you figure you'll be able to manage it. <laughs> yeah, that'll be, <laughs> like be fine. If like, you're like a trillion dollar company, you're like, okay, this might suck for a little while, but we'll survive and flourish. <laughs> that's expressvpncom com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more.
3: Every time I come on and, and talk with you, Andrew, I want to talk about my favorite tweet um, of the past week that you made. And so this was by far my favorite. You tweeted this. You said... If you succeed within a system, it's hard to see how fucked up it is um, which I loved and then I, I also um there's two reasons I love this one because I think there's a um, there was some conservatives that that argued against it or just brought up a counterpoint and then I also segues into our, our conversation or your conversation with Anand which which is on this episode so Ben Shapiro, who is a polarizing conservative figure, but you've been on his show um, and he was reasonable to you and he said um which I thought was a reasonable response. So to your tweet, he said, and if you don't succeed within a system, it's easy to blame the system. So anecdotal success or failure does not dictate whether a system is good or bad. So I'll pause there. Uh, Elaborate more on what you mean by this system. And frankly, you're talking about the perspective around the system, whether it's good or bad. What did you what did you mean when you tweeted it?
2: Well, it applies to a lot of things, unfortunately, in American life. Uh, but yeah. um, but I tend to think about things through an economic lens. Uh, and so we've had this punishing economy that has turned on most uh, working Americans over the last number of years. Uh, and to, to Ben's tweet, um, you know, it's like I'm not really an anecdote guy. I'm a data guy. You know, like if you can see that uh, housing and education and healthcare costs have gone up and up and your income hasn't changed, then... Um, that's probably gonna make people very miserable uh, and you know if, if you let's say made a lot of money uh, during the this last number of years you tend to think it's like okay well it worked for me so maybe it's still working okay or right. or like or, or the the fact that you know it's like oh I worked hard it's like well you know my cleaning person works hard too and like they're not exactly um, killing it so right. <laughs> so that, like that there's like a a natural human reaction to think that uh, one, if you're okay, then others are okay. And two, uh, if something worked for you, then it's working. Uh, and you could use the economy, which is what I was thinking about it for, but you could think about it for just about anything like our, our quote unquote meritocratic educational system, um, which I think ends up informing our culture uh, in many, mm. many respects um there are there are just so many imbalances in American life now. And the folks at the top are often insulated uh, from from them. The best of them realize it's like, okay, just because I made it in this system, let's call it Silicon Valley. It's like, you know, are, are there some very, very smart, hardworking people who become very successful in Silicon Valley? Of course, um, you know, has Silicon Valley been somehow some like pure meritocracy where all you need is a good idea? Like, not really. <laughs> if
3: you look at like... Uh, <laughs>
2: You know, yeah. I mean, if, if you look at the backgrounds of a, a lot of these founders and, and uh, you know, you see some very, very consistent themes. Um, and and to, to me, the big issue is that you can believe in individual agency and autonomy and self-development, which I 100% believe in, and also mm-hmm. look up at the facts and say, uh, well, like our, our institutions and structures are not actually helping people flourish and succeed, which I 100% believe. Uh, uh,
3: believe in yeah it's not black and white
2: yeah they're not somehow mutually exclusive it's not like if you try and fix the system you give everyone a license to just like throw their hands up and say you know like uh like take care of my stuff for me i mean that's not the way it goes but everyone just wants to do better in my mind and we've just made it difficult or impossible for many many people to do better
3: i was on wall street i just remember this like classic almost idiom from the executive directors and managing directors above me where they would they wouldn't always say it this way but it would be implied like if you work hard like i did and play by the rules and keep your head down get into good school and work your way up you'll be successful like me and that's like something you get in that world and and i, I like a quick story when i was in i went to a public school and um so had kids from all different income backgrounds and i'll never this kid alex i was after football practice like 6 30 and i'm going home and i'm like where are you going he's like i'm going to work I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, how do you think I pay for this cell phone and these shoes? And so me, I didn't grow up with money, but relative to the system, I was loaded in the sense that I had two parents that love me and they gave me a crappy cell phone. But more importantly, they let me go home at 630 after football practice and have time to do my homework. Right. Um, and Alex did not have that time. Um, Alex was working at Dunkin Donuts and Baskin Robbins till, you know, one in the morning. And then I don't know when he did his homework. I'm not sure. Um, and so, uh, to me, like, that's something that the people at UBS, like, just never saw. Like, they just don't see that, right? And Alex is working his ass off, um, but it's different. Like, I mean, thoughts on, is that is that where you, I mean, it's kind of what you and Anon talk about, right? Where, like, the people at the top don't understand how broken the bottom part is or the disparity there. Like, what are your, I mean, thoughts on that or...
2: Yeah, you know, I, I think what 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 Anand and I talk about um, is in large part that, like, we've all been brainwashed
3: into thinking
2: that like the system is good, and then uh, we uh, lionize folks who are at the top of the system, being like, "How did you do it? How did you do it?" And then they're like, "Here's how I did it," and they like sprinkle um, <laughs> sp- the sprinkle the the goodness and wisdom uh, of market world, um, and his profound observation, which is totally correct, is that that's bullshit. That market world is actually um, like a very specific (laughs) set of uh, institutions with specific rules. And if we look to that universe to uh, save us, we're fucked. Um, And he's right. Uh, And so you need some kind of different pole of thought, of ideas, of uh, solutions, because the folks who are served most amply by a given situation are very, very unlikely to be like, this situation is terrible, it's tear it up. You know, like like that, that, like they might suggest cosmetic tweaks. Uh, and we're well beyond the cosmetic tweak zone. Like we're, we're in the overhaul zone. Um, and so when you try and figure out, okay, what does the overhaul look like? You probably don't necessarily want to take your cues from the folks who uh, have... Uh, climb to the top of the, <laughs> the, yeah. the of the world that you uh, that you need to make significant changes to.
3: One of the things you guys said was that for some reason, if you make a lot of money, we like think you're a genius, and you were like, I think you might be. If you make a lot of money, you might be dumb on like a whole bunch of stuff, and we probably shouldn't be relying on your wisdom <laughs> on like social policy or healthcare policy, <laughs> which I think. It's true, right? Like if you built, like you made a bunch of money selling widgets, you're selling Cheetos, like you probably don't understand the intricacies of the Federal Reserve or God knows what you do in government.
2: Yeah, you'd have a narrow band of expertise that I'd be highly interested in if my goal was to do what you did. <laughs> but outside of that domain, like, you know, you may, uh, you may actually be worse off than most because uh, in my experience, if you're worth a billion dollars, Uh, No one around you actually ever questions you or tells you no. (laughs) So so you might be like... Oh my gosh, yeah. So you might be really, really uh, awful (laughs) in your judgment on a whole (laughs) host of things. Uh, And and so I I think Anand's uh, core thesis uh, of his book Winners Take All um, was so powerful uh, and it was so needed and timely.
3: There's this myth that private philanthropists can actually help and make massive change and i'm here to tell you because i i spent three years at my job at on wall street was to deal with the wealthiest philanthropists in the world and help them give money to charity and i'm here to tell you that a lot of them are good people and they mean well but they're not solving anything they're not solving squat um in some way they can't but the other way um like there's so many like natural ways to screw up your philanthropy. Like if it if you've worked thirty years, like making money selling insurance and you wanna give back, you probably won't put your name on something. So you're gonna start your own thing. Like there's so many there's way too many charities, people putting their name on stuff because it's their legacy. And so it's less about solving the problems many times, it's about giving back and feeling good. But there's nothing necessarily wrong with except it's not you the wrong is that nothing gets solved.
2: Yes, we we talked to Wes more about that, where you can't solve mm-hmm. a trillion dollar problem with a million dollars. I mean that that's what like a lot of <laughs> a lot. Uh, what, yeah. what a lot And in a way, you're like, well, at least you know you gave the million. Like that's kind of good. Right. Yeah. Um, but but then, um, but you don't want to fool yourself. Um, and and right. so I, I think that's um, that's one of Anand's core. Ideas. Uh, I was so excited to sit down with him. He he was. Uh, he's someone that I've known for a long time, but I haven't actually had a chance to connect with him since really the campaign launched.
3: Yeah, he's. Um, this is one of the good ones. Like you guys, like you're cut from the same cloth. You've seen the same problem. I think from different perspectives and experiences, and you guys just riff. Um, this is a fascinating, and I'm passionate about it because I've seen. I've seen the people at the top. I'm now seeing the people at the bottom of the campaign. Like, we, we, we you need a systematic change. You got to, like, you always said, rewrite the rules of the economy, rewrite the rules of the game. Like, that's the only way this is going to get solved, you know, and it's conversations like this that drive you in that direction. All right, guys, Andrew's conversation with Anand is coming up right after this break.
2: This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses as tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now... Seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome to Yang Speaks. The author, journalist, activist, commentator, political thinker, massive influence on me and my thinking, Anand Girdardas. Welcome. It's great to to reconnect. Likewise. So good to talk to you. You and I, you know what's fun is uh, I read your book, which had a big impact on me. And if you haven't read it, if you're listening to this, uh, Anand's book, Winners Take All, was to me one of like this seminal the seminal tract on how far we've all been brainwashed into what Anand calls market world, which I thought was a great name. It's capital M, (laughs) capital M and capital W. W. Oh, and capital W. So capital M market, capital W world. Uh, but I, one of the fun things is in reading your book is like, I felt like I was a little bit, a part of your origin story. Not really, I was more like a witness to the origin story. So, uh, you and I have been friendly from sort of like New York uh, circles. And then you and I found ourselves in Aspen for this Aspen Institute gathering. And you were like one of like the Henry Crown Fellows, which in the Aspen universe is like, like the Knights of the round table sort of thing. Like, you know, you got gathered in, you should know, they, they um, had me apply and rejected me. <laughs>
1: it's Probably for your benefit.
2: So we're in Aspen. You're one of the knights. Um, I'm there as like a guest or an observer. Uh, You know, and there are all sorts of different people uh, there. And we're getting a presentation from someone from Goldman Sachs about some something they're doing around like rebuilding small businesses. It might have been something like 10,000 small businesses Uh, and rooms filled with very powerful, influential people, and I'll never forget this. You stand up and you're like, are, are we seriously listening to this Goldman Sachs presentation yes. at this gathering where we're supposed to be trying to figure out how we're going to rebuild the world? And then this bank and institution that's been complicit in a lot of the depredations of the last number of years is, is literally just like telling us about like the good stuff they're doing. And you could hear a pin drop in that room. It was a big room with a lot of people and I had to say, like, standing there, I was like, that guy has so much guts because standing in this room saying that, even though it needed to be said, like, I loved it so much. And I think I, afterwards I was like, dude, that was like the most baller thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and, and it truly was because, like, it, it felt like you were throwing, uh, like, a fly in the ointment. Or like a rock into the the gears. And like there are these giant gears of happy talk that we were all going to engage in about the good things people were doing. And some of the things people were doing there were legitimately good. Uh, but you were like, hey, FYI, like this particular stands as bullshit. <laughs> and, and by calling that out as
1: bullshit, like it made you question a lot of the other things that were going on. It's so interesting. You know, for, I mean, first of all, I remember hanging out with you in that godforsaken mountain town, but I did not realize that it was at that uh, Goldman Sachs lunch, which was actually a year or even more before I gave the speech in Aspen that would result in the book. And so, but you're absolutely right. And it's so interesting that you pick up on that. That was actually the origin moment. And I've never actually talked about that before, even though it's on YouTube. Like that was actually the origin moment because I had been selected by this, fellowship, the Henry Crown fellowship. And to be very clear, you know, you were a little more relevant in that world. Like I was really not. I was a writer. This was a fellowship mostly for business people who were looking to do be more than business people, to kind of think more about societal issues, move in the direction of thinking about the public good uh, in their own modest corporate way. But as you also know from your life experience, a room full of 20 business people is human ambient. I mean, it will just put everybody to sleep. Business people are profoundly boring in general. So there, (laughs) there, there was this notion of, you know, sprinkle a couple people who are not business people into every class of 20 or so people, artists, writers, circus performers, whatever. I was one of these people. I was the Indian spice in my class. And so I'm in this thing. And, you know, I would love to be able to sit here and tell you a story. Like from the moment I got there, I was outraged and I saw everything that was wrong with it and I fought. But that's not how the world works, at least not for me. Um, That is not how the world works for any of us. It takes a long time to see things, right? I mean, this is sort of why I'm a writer. Like the art of seeing things is like such a difficult art, particularly when there's such great incentives in the form of beautiful vistas and delicious wine to not see them right and so i was very much in the in the kind of um myopia the pleasant myopia of that world the first couple years and i would go it basically meant you go to aspen once a week you read plato and aristotle and gandhi and you discuss things with these people about making the world a better place and it seemed fine it didn't seem i wasn't particularly convinced that it was going to change the world but i wasn't Mad at it. I didn't, I, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like, I didn't believe what I now believe, which was that every day they were doing that, the world was getting worse as a result of their doing it, right? That's That took me a long time to get to. But maybe the origin moment for me there was the moment you just described where it occurred to me. And I think this is very important for those of us who have a critique of inequality, of a critique of oligarchy, of how America works today. You have to understand the banality of... Um, through which it is prosecuted. It is prosecuted in a million different ways, some of which are involve hard power and kind of structural violence and lobbying and all kinds of, but, but a lot of which involve the infiltration and conquest of the culture. And one little moment that exemplifies that is sitting in a room at the Aspen Institute, all these business people, but also non-business people, there were students in that room, there are all kinds of people in that room, Yes. Sitting there, receiving a presentation sponsored by Goldman Sachs. I was told Goldman Sachs paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to advertise to us, a few hundred of us, in that lunch. And no mention being made a few years after it helped cause the financial crisis of any of its complicity in that. And instead, this notion of Goldman Sachs championing 10,000 small businesses for women, owned by women. And so I got up and raised my hand and said, you know, it's great that Goldman's giving these women uh, advice, but based on what I'm hearing about these actually wonderful women on stage, small business owners, it may be better for them to give Goldman Sachs advice about how to run businesses in the honorable, ethical way that they seem to be much more knowledgeable about. Um, And you're right, it was the origin point because it felt like what was happening there was what I later came to call the Aspen consensus, which is fundamentally the notion you know the phrase, the Washington Consensus. There's now talk of a Beijing Consensus. I tried to coin this notion of an Aspen Consensus, which defines hyper-capitalism in our age in America, which is ask the richest and most powerful people, the winners of our age, to do more good, to help out, to give back, to chip in, but never ask them to do less harm. Never ask them to stop, uh, you know, dumping externalities into the society. Never ask them to stop causing climate change. Never ask them to stop making kids get diabetes with their sugary drinks. Never ask them to stop lobbying for bottle service public policy that's good for them, bad for most people. Never ask them to start paying their proper taxes. Just tell them to exploit the system in the continued ways that they, uh, continue exploiting the ways that they have been, and then donate some of the table scraps to a fraction of those they've spent their lives hurting.
2: I was privy to uh, a lot of what you're you're describing, where if someone makes a ton of money, and one of the things I love about your critique is like, just about all of our major media platforms will occasionally have some story about, like Billionaire X says this, Billionaire X believes that. Uh, and you never question, it's like, why do I give a fuck what Billionaire <laughs> X says or cares about? It's like, like, did, did the B next to his name somehow uh, make him like the most learned person in, in the land?
1: Like, that did, did this. It's, this... The, it's the famous Ph.B. degree.
2: Yeah, he got the Ph.B. degree, which trumps all, you know, uh, where um, that, the critique, it because you see it everywhere, uh, where there is this market based thinking that has grown to just predominate our every waking moment. Uh, and it's even worse now because a lot of the things that used to be uncountable are now countable. It's like it, it used to be like, hey, how good a person are you? Well, let me see what your social media says.
1: But I think that the, that, that, the, the cool. notion you point to is really important to just pause on for a second. This idea, Because part of what I try to do in Winners Take All is, is broaden the explanation of an age of inequality. And so there's a lot of the stuff we normally focus on, like what are the tax rates? very important what's the lobbying that's going on what's the role of money in politics that's allowable all these things incredibly important and are a huge part of the story of how we uh, the scaffolding um, of an age of inequality. however, there's a bunch of other supports of an age of inequality that are less talked about and so you name one that's really important that people don't think about a lot, which is the turning of rich people into thinkers. This is not a naturally occurring phenomenon like rainfall. This is an engineered occurrence, right? Like the notion that someone like Steven Schwartzman or Ray Dalio or Mark Zuckerberg is a person whose thoughts we should think about at a higher proportion than they're allowed to express them through a vote um, is laughable on its face. I mean, not only are these people not more important as thinkers than you know, a lot of people, they're often quite dumb as thinkers relative to the average person because they're so, you know, parched for actual information about how people live in the society. And yet there's this process by which th- these billionaires become thinkers. They become what I call thought leaders in the book, right? And they and they turn into these figures. And what's so brilliant about it, Andrew, is that if there was just like a billionaire in a velvet robe, smoking a cigar, drinking you know, Courvoisier and and said, you know, Andrew Yang, you're running for president. I have some thoughts about tax policy. You'd be like, get the fuck away from me. OK, but now if that person. Wait, wait, are you, are you saying
2: like for real? Because we all know politicians actually listen very long and hard to what that person No, I'm, t- I'm talking say. about, but I'm talking about,
1: <laughs> correct. No, I'm talking about you. I'm talking about you. Like, I think you are more alive to that threat than a lot of people out there. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think you are. Right. If that person just was like nakedly, like, I'm trying to get rich, I'm trying to keep my wealth. I would like to talk to you about tax policy. I think you'd be squeamish. Or
2: or you could be like, I have
1: a pretty good sense of what you're about to say. Correct. (laughs) Correct. You'd be well defended. Let's put it that way. If you wanted to be. Now, if that same person barnacles a couple things onto themselves, right? Let's say they suddenly get really involved with helping girls in Africa. By the way, someone once said to me when I was reporting the book, there's a reason all these guys love investing in girls, right? They they love girls. As soon as girls become women, they don't like treating them particularly well. But they they, they love investing in them when they're still girls. Um, So he does some girls stuff in Africa, right? Never been to Africa, but he does some girls stuff there. He's donating to public schools in Gary, Indiana, you know. Uh, And he's got a book out about three solutions to the economic challenges of the United States. Same billionaire, same naked interests. Now that guy comes to you. Is he gonna say, I'm concerned about losing my wealth? No. He's gonna say, Andrew Yang, you talk about you know this massive churn in our society, this future of automation, all these things. I wanna talk to you about Gary, Indiana where I'm very involved in the school system. Well, how, how are you gonna turn that meeting down? He now has a platform to talk to you and then, And I'm not saying this about you specifically, but once he's having that conversation, once he's in relationship with you on the basis of that much gentler approach that doesn't leave you well defended, at some point, one day you are going to get a call about the wealth tax issue or about the capital gains thing, right? And so what philanthropy and do-gooding and all this stuff that I call the charade does for a lot of these folks is provide them a halo uh, that actually allows them to appear to be sages on the question of the good society when in fact uh, they are the reason among the principal reasons the society is is sort of avoided um, the possibilities of being more good
2: a couple things i will stipulate that i completely agree with you on i agree with just about everything you just said but one one thing is that there is no way we will ever get to a point we want to be if the plan is to have people who are the ultra winners in our society uh, give us like a tiny smidgen of what they made, uh, like it's just a loser. It's like a massive loser. And if you look at a lot of the scale of the philanthropy, I'm always impressed when someone's giving enough money where it actually hurts them, where it pains them. Um, I ran a nonprofit for a number of years and you're raising money from some of these people. And what you realize is that even if someone has a B next to their name, um they're not trafficking in like increments of like tens of millions for their philanthropy. It's like if they've got a B next to their name, then they, like it gets translated through this organization and they have like tend they tend to have a small army of handlers. And then maybe you can like get like like a five or six figure check. Uh and, and then if you're in that How do you think they became billionaires? <laughs> yeah, and, and if you're in that situation too, if you're the nonprofit leader, you can't be like like, what's this? <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> like, <laughs> you <know? laughs> Instead, you're like, oh, well, you know, thank you. Never you never threw it back
1: song. in their face, Andrew?
2: <laughs> you're like, well, you know, I appreciate this gener- generosity. And then you think, okay, let me try to build this relationship. Maybe, like, I can get another zero on this check, like, the next time. So there's there's never any, like, oh, this is, um, you know, uh, ungenerous. because and, and that's when you talk about... Like the perspective of a billionaire, one of the the ideas I started telling my team about uh, was what I called the force field, which is like like when you become mega wealthy, you end up with like a force field around you, and the force field can be com- composed of people because you have all like the right. spalinks of people around you that are like trying to bat people away. People like like me, who's you know, running a nonprofit, is pretty predictable. Just like they were concerned about tax policy for. Uh, their riches like if i'm the head of a nonprofit, you know i'm going to ask you for money at some point (laughs) so it's like uh um so they they have like the force field around them um and when you had a human exchange with someone who was like that where you felt like oh like i felt like that actually kind of uh pierced the the force field like you actually knew it because it was so rare like it was it was a real rarity but we'll never get to where we want to go if the plan is for us to somehow have some of these scraps fall down on people, particularly because it's seldom the case that the scraps are actually significant in relation to the person's wealth.
1: Yeah, but I would would have two reactions to that. I think what, in a way, what you're talking about is, I think there are two different kinds of miserliness that we are talking about here, right? And what you just laid out is the first and most obvious kind as someone who had to fundraise that was the kind that was rubbed in your face most often which is the which is quantitative miserliness right which is just like they have x and the most they're ever going to give you is 0.01x okay that's like basic miser the basic miserliness of this of this space right i think part of where i have tried to take this argument is even if we were to stipulate, something that is not true, but let's imagine everybody behaved like Bill Gates. It's, it still does not work out. Correct. It still does not Even work Even if out. everybody had X and everybody committed to giving 0.9X, right? And, and guys like you, when you were running nonprofits were rolling in that money and, and, and left. Even so, the second kind of miserliness is these folks refuse. Whether or not they're willing to part with their money, they refuse to part with their system. And that's where a Bill Gates is not fundamentally different from some of the people who are, like Jeff Bezos, who are giving very little, right? If you look at Bezos and Gates on paper, in in terms of the first kind of miserliness, quantitative miserliness, they're very different, right? Bill Gates is not quantitatively miserly. He's committed to give you know, genuinely philanthropic. And yeah,
2: I visited the Gates Foundation
1: in Seattle. Have you visited that? that Uh, I have not. I'm not invited to a lot of places.
2: I, I went when I was passing the hat for my nonprofit, like I'd go anywhere where, (laughs) so (laughs) I I ended, I I ended up getting a big uh, nothing. But anyway, I did get to visit and it was the most beautiful environment and campus and office. It had like a big message um, from, from Bill and Melinda. And it was, uh, it was uplifting in the sense that it was very well done. <laughs> like, you, like You visited and you were like, wow, this is uh, the most impressive uh, structure, institution. And people were great, too. You know, they're, they're a lot of the same sort of people that you and I um, have gone to school with or, you know, are working in that space. So yeah, the well, it's a
1: shrine of giving, but it's also a shrine of taking too much, which is why it's so beautiful.
2: It's it's a shrine to something. I mean, it was beautiful. Uh, So I just wanted to to, to, to just impart that experience to you that uh, that yeah, like the philanthropy is very
1: impressive in scale.
2: So 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 even if we say like Bill Gates and
1: Bezos on 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 miserliness number one are very different, right? Quantitative miserliness, they're different. Gates gives a lot. Bezos has given quite a little bit so far. On miserliness number number two, which is, I would say, qualitative miserliness, which is sort of, are you willing to part with the system, the set of assumptions, the privileges, the impunity, the immunity that has defined your time on the planet and this amassing of fortune? um, Then a Bezos and a Gates don't start to look that different. Because when it comes to, as you know well from from living inside the process in many different ways. If if Bill Gates said, I want a universal basic income, your idea, to happen. Uh, if Bill Gates wanted Bernie and Elizabeth's wealth tax to happen, any of, pick, pick whatever one of those kind of notions. Major pillars or policies. For $5 billion, yeah. you could probably get something like that done. Right? You could change a you know, big philanthropic initiative. Do, do what the Kochs did, but for good. You know, Buy some institutes, put ideas out in the culture, sponsor writers and thinkers, the left's version of Charles Murray who are churning out these ideas. Get it done. You could do that. The fact that there, no billionaire, and this may sound like an obvious statement, but let's state it. The fact that no billionaire that I know of has bankrolled billions of dollars toward advocating for a wealth tax tells you that on the question of the second miserliness, it is almost universal, regardless of how much money people are willing to part with.
2: Now, one of the most singular exceptions I've seen, and this is very recent, and I could definitely be biased against this, be, uh, biased because I'm one of the recipients, um, was Jack Dorsey's recent announcement of a billion dollars, because he's giving straight to mayors for guaranteed income. Uh, he's give, He gave us $5 million that we immediately just turn around and gave to uh people who are struggling right now so it, it was a great feeling people were thanking us and i was just like honestly it was like you know i'm I'm just like a conduit for um for some of jack's wealth and there's a significant proportion of his net worth uh but i agree with you that and you got even qualified it you said that like in virtually every case um like this is not the way they're heading I agree with you, because when you look at it, most of them are kind of taking for granted certain structures that have facilitated their uh, success and wealth. um, And they have very little interest in actually examining those structures or or, um, altering uh, the way they work. Uh, They they look around and you point this out in your book is they look around and say, "Okay, how can I make you more successful in the world as it is right now, where people like me become fantabulously wealthy. It's like, how can I make you more successful in market world, uh, teach you a little bit of the market magic?
1: Yes, it's, it's, you know, how can I find you um, a more comfortable nook in my dungeon, right? There's like, you still got to live in my dungeon and I still got to live in this castle, but it would, but it would be moving to me if I could donate some of my enormous spoils to finding you a more comfortable nook in the dungeon. You know, and so when it comes to Jack, to pick apart a couple things there. I, here's what I think is impressive about Jack, which is I think Jack has grappled with the questions you and I are talking about. I know he read my book. I know he read, I think a lot of other things in this space. There was a big piece in Recode about this recently, talking about his grappling. I think Jack has is one of the first mega givers on the other side of the recent wave of prominent critiques of big philanthropy that doesn't mean he, i endorse any or any the, everything he does but 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 there's a, you know as you know there's just a power in like grappling with questions as opposed to ignoring them or swatting them off i think he's grappled with them and so some of the direct giving i think reflects that some of the no strings attached i think grows out of a sense of not wanting to rich explain to ngos how they operate. So there's, there, I see evidence.
2: Just a tiny note too for Jack, which I found very impressive. He does not have an army of people advising on his philanthropy. Correct. Let's put it that way. <laughs> like it's one reason we put up the Google doc. He was like, "Look, we're just gonna let pe- folks know who we're do- giving it to," and I don't have like some army anyway, w- which is
1: also unusual. I, I think where I'm more troubled by Jack um, is this notion that is also at the heart of the book which is that uh, there has there is this notion now that virtue is a side hustle right and that it is acceptable for your day job to be done in a way that contributes to social problems and then you have the side hustle of virtue and so when i look at jack i look at someone whose twitter platform which i spend a lot of time on you spend time on has real problems that people have pointed out and the solution of which would in many cases mean Less profitability uh, for Twitter, right? You could you can hire more monitors to ferret out neo-Nazi content. I mean, it's just a it's just the number of people. If, you, if 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 the number you have isn't working, you can hire more. But that's money, uh, you know. If uh, you actually had everybody have to have a driver's license to be on Twitter or some kind of identity, so you don't have random trolls and Russian bots, whatever, that would probably crimp their growth quite a bit, right? And so when I look at someone like Jack, I say the the real power you have over America, $5 million is sort of a lot of money, but it's not actually a lot of money. Like the real power Jack has over American life is platforming or de-platforming the president, like allowing white supremacy to have a online viral presence or not, Um, allowing Twitter to be a place that many women fundamentally and foremost experience as a place of abuse. Or not these are all solvable problems they just cost money and they crimp profitability and I personally and people may disagree with me on this I would be fine with Jack solving the problems in his own house making less money as a result and having less to give to you to give to others that you know that that we have to be honest about the consequence of reducing these opportunities for the winners to exploit uh, our society means they will have less to give away. But as someone, I was in an event in London with uh, The Economist of all, of all places. It was a tense, tense moment. Um, and this woman stood up after I'd been talking about this litany of social problems in the United States. This woman stood up in London. She's like, I'm from, I think she's from Sweden or Norway. I feel very, you know, guilty, confusing those peoples. But she was from one of these i I'm sure you're hurting someone's feelings. Yeah, I am right now. I'm gonna get canceled for this, Scandy canceled. Um, And she said, you know, I'm from Scandinavia and, you know, I wanna say, we don't have um, as many billionaires as you do in the United States. And we don't have this much giving that you have in the United States. But I gotta tell you, I listened to your entire litany of social problems And we don't have most of those either. So I would kind of take that deal. If only I could remember which country it was.
2: Your fundamental argument that if we had better rules of the road, that would probably mint fewer billionaires, but would also throw out many fewer negative externalities uh, in every which way, environmental, social, uh, economic, cultural. I agree with it fundamentally. Uh, the, The problem that we have is that those rules of the road would theoretically be set by government and our government has been completely overrun by market world thinking uh, has been captive completely ignorant on technology issues like essentially just been sitting there clapping and being like you know like we don't understand you but we sense that you're uh very Rich. (laughs) So like, maybe you could, uh, I mean, literally, as we're having this conversation, I mean, I think our country is having a reexamination, certainly of tech's uh, negative impacts. But you don't need to focus just on tech, even though tech might be one of the biggest examples, given our legislators complete ignorance about technology issues i mean you can look at even some of the older industries and think like hey are there now excesses that are allowing i mean the biggest ones clearly finance i mean that thing is like bananas where it's become this the tail wagging the dog in our economy it used to be that financiers were essentially just uh helpers to industry uh and and i thought of ge essentially as the emblem of this where my dad worked for ge uh he immigrated you know, here I met my mom at, at Berkeley and then became uh, an engineer in Schenectady where I was born in New York. And that was when GE was making things and inventing things. And then GE, GE kind of morphed with the economy into GE Credit, had this like giant financial institution. Right. At one point, I think they were one of like the top 10 lenders in the country. And then they blew up with the financial crisis. And so uh, what happened with GE Uh, It really was an emblem of American business because it went from building things to all of a sudden just, you know, moving numbers around Uh, and the rewards for people at the top of the finance industry have zero relationship with the amount of good that's being done or social benefit. And that became egregiously clear to all of us when the economy blew up in 08, where you looked around, you, you had this sense. It's like, hey. Uh, like I, I feel like there are some excesses here, but at least it seems to be creating value. And then it turns out it's like, no, it was not creating any value at all. It was actually just um, uh, putting people into homes and trying to that that weren't appropriate and then preying on people who are vulnerable and then trying to paper it all, all over by smushing them into these uh Uh, mortgage-backed securities and collateralized debt obligations that no one could understand. And that was really their business, was just making shit that no one understood until it was too late. Uh, So the question is really like we're at a point where now we've experienced decades of excesses. And if you could have done it right, you would have a time machine and say like, hey, some of these industries are going to end up growing in ways that are bad for everyone uh, it's going to mint fantastically wealthy people far in excess of anything that any human probably quote unquote deserves. Um, and it is very painful when someone who becomes incredibly wealthy is like, oh, I worked hard. It's like, well, you know, so did that cleaning person and they're not a billionaire, you know, <laughs> like, like like your, your hard work hasn't really somehow, um, you know, made you worth like, you know, a hundred thousand times, like the person who teaches my kids, but, uh, But we don't have the time machine. We're here. We're in 2020 where it's like, you know, the excesses have grown to like mammoth proportions. You're one of the people that I think has pointed out the ridiculousness and hypocrisy of like a lot of these situations um, and how deeply brainwashed we've all become. Uh, That market-based thinking is the only thinking. And if the post office doesn't make money, then fuck the post office. Right. you know, like if, if local newspapers don't make money, fuck local newspapers. Like pretty much any anything you look around and say like, what, it, it's not uh, paying for itself. Then like you turn on it, train lines, whatever the heck they are. Uh, so we're here. You're one of the foremost leaders saying like, hey, guys, like we've lost the thread. Um, and attacking people for not being market world successful is ridiculous. Like we need a whole different approach intellectually. Uh, I agree. Uh, And and I ran on this platform that's like, hey, let's try and disentangle human value and economic value. Uh, And the single most dramatic way to do so, I believe, is just universal basic income. Let's just start giving people money. And oh, by the way, it's necessary because we're going to get rid of a lot of the most common jobs in American life anyway, because of technology, which has then gotten accelerated by the pandemic. Uh, So I agree with your diagnosis, I agree with your critique of the various players. I look around and you and I traffic, and I'd love to hear about like whether you're now cast out of the circles, because I just imagine, I was about to say, you and I travel in the same circles, now I'm not so
1: sure <laughs>
3: what, 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 whether,
2: whether that's true. I don't know if you've been
3: excommunicated.
2: Yeah, I've lost some circles uh,
1: um, and gained some new ones. The, the new ones are better than the old ones.
2: I would love to hear about that because that is fascinating. And that's been true of every important thing I've ever done where I've, I've like lost some circles and gained some. True, it was true of my presidential race too. Uh, so here we are. Um, and I had this this set of policy proposals that I thought would at least start to improve people's lives in a way and start to disentangle this thinking. Um, I mean, actual modern regulation of technology in these other industries has to be a piece of the a puzzle or a pillar in this structure. Um, the, the thing that I find frustrating when I talk to people about it is like, they, they still cast back on what I regard as relatively backward looking approaches or solutions where it's like, let's say we're to like gin up the um, income tax to something more progressive, which I completely agree with. And I'll even say, go a step further, I, we also start treating capital gains the same way we do labor income, which is at a minimum what we should do. Right. Like capital gains, if anything, should be taxed higher uh like so if if people argue for those solutions like to me like the horse is already out of the barn <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> like, like like the like a lot of the wealth has already been generated correct and one of the the things i say to someone is like look let's say i made income taxes 70 percent uh you know how much is jeff bezos gonna pay and then they they think about it and they were like i don't know i was like do you think we're gonna get like billions of dollars from jeff based on my changing the income tax uh, and then they, they say no. And I'm like, yeah, cause he's not an idiot. He's not going to pay himself 10 billion a year. Uh, you know, he pays himself something manageable and most of his, um, stocks getting, most of his wealth is in Amazon stock. Uh, and how much did Amazon pay in tax last year? Zero. It's like, all right. So, you know, like it, he's way too clever for like higher income taxes to somehow do the
1: trick. So, uh, so let me, I mean, so first a couple things, you know, I think when I, First of all, I wanna say this on the universal basic income. I, I, I said this in a tweet before and I, I'll, I'll say it to your face now. Like I, when the pandemic struck, um, I quite immediately began to feel like your UBI advocacy um, took on an obviousness that had eluded me during the campaign, right? Um, and I'll get to why in a second. Like, I, I feel like you were singing a song that became very obvious to a lot of people once you suddenly have millions of people from one week to the next thrown out in the street, um, losing jobs, being evicted. You know, it's been obvious to me and many other people for a while that you shouldn't tie health care to employment, for example. Right. And I think the point you were making was that you, you shouldn't tie employment to the rudiments of... You know, human dignity, living, um, yeah. and but particularly, you know, I, I I have this quote in the book from a from a guy at a at a platform cooperativism, which is this movement uh, uh, event, and you know, he says in every age, there are certain things that people don't have a choice but to use, right? Like you don't choose the world. And and one and those things should not be expensive, right? So the internet is a good example of that. Like it's not a mean you don't have a choice to not use the internet, right? Like your kids are going to have assignments on it. Like that's that's not a choice. So that should not be that should be free. And and to broaden that a little bit, it used to be granaries, in, in a different era, right? Um, and to broaden it, I think one way to think about one way to say what you have said very eloquently on this is, you know, if costs. Are a certain thing because we have monopolies because we have lack of regular, like if costs are what they are if this is then there's a certain minimum existence people need to have that is not there it's not their fault that the rents are what you know what they are it's not so, so I, I i you know i was very persuaded by that and i was belatedly persuaded by it because of the pandemic And i think you deserve a lot of credit for for elevating that i'll tell you what my lingering non-pandemic reservation is and i'm curious your thought then we can go to the rest of the the here we are now agenda um my reservation is and I, i think i mentioned this in the book that it i fear that a ubi assumes a bleak future for ordinary people in a way that maybe uh we can avoid Yes, 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 <laughs> is what yes, is? I, I fear that it concedes a point that I'm not willing to concede, which is, you know, for example, 40% of people will not have regular work, whatever the numbers are, right? Like, yeah. I'm and, and you're more of an expert on these actual trends than I am, for sure. But I view any of those types of outcomes as being the product of politics, not the product of forces. Like, I actually don't think, like, I think there is some tax regime, some regulatory regime in place, where Even profound technological shifts do not have those impacts. Now, I don't know if they're passable. I don't know if we're going to do them. But part of... I think part of why... And I know you come at it from a very different place. But part of why the UBI is very popular in the Valley, right? And a lot of those people love you more than you love them back is because I think what they hear in your UBI thing is like, we'll get to continue the current power relations of the country. Like, we'll get to continue having these monopolies we'll get to continue having labor precarity so that we don't have to make Uber drivers work like, and now in a way, I just worry that the well-meaning thing becomes almost an excuse to not change those power equations. We don't need to fix labor law to fight this notion of people being made contractors instead of employees because they'll have a UBI. We don't need to rebuild unions because even if we don't, people will be eating and living. Um, And I'm not sure where I land on it, to be honest, Um, which is I think something you're not supposed to say, but like, I don't know what I think about this, you know? But I'm curious how you think about the risk of conceding a future that's bad for workers when in fact we may have democratic choices we could make that would make the future not unfold like that at all.
2: I don't think I was arguing for the future anymore like i just looked outside my window and said this is here and now Mm -hmm. this is where we are if you look around is the precarity already here like are americans working two three jobs uh you know do school teachers have to commute 90 minutes in in order to like you know come teach people's kids in, in rich areas and then have uber advertise to them that like hey we found school teachers make good uber drivers and parentheses we know that you can't live just on a school teacher salary anymore i mean all of like the bleak shit that people fear is here <laughs> uh and now the pandemic sped it up um and made it crystal clear um but all you have to do is look at our legislators and say like hey have these people been on the ball like making the right political choices for the last x number of years so a, a lot of it on is just like like, I, I just said, look, shit is much bleaker and nastier right now than most people accept. Uh, and af- as soon as you actually scratch the surface and flip the rock over, you're like, whoa, like this is actually really, really dark mm-hmm. and punishing and inhuman and destroying people. People's ways of life are disintegrating right and left. I spent, I mean, you were from, you grew up in uh, the Midwest, right? For at least a period. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, I've spent- People always telling me to go
1: back to my country. I mean, it's like, you know, I'm not going back to Cleveland.
2: Yeah, Shaker Heights. I have some friends from there. So uh, I saw what happened to Ohio. You know, like the aftermath of the decimation of manufacturing jobs has just left a lot of those communities in a really rough spot. It was a woman in Cleveland who said to me, she said, hey, around here changes the four letter word. And I had to figure out what the heck she was talking about. I was like, it's factually not, but also how can you regard change as so negative? And it was only after spending time with her, she said, look, for us change means the plant closing, people leaving, success here in this part of Ohio means leaving. Uh, it's one reason why LeBron coming back was such a big deal. Is that like if, if you just see people deserting your town right and left, then if I say, "Hey, we're gonna change things around here," like your mind immediately goes to, "Well, like that's probably bad for me," because any because like I haven't seen a good change in, in quite some time.
1: So, but what do you think about this notion of? I mean, what what the people you're talking about lack is both money and power, right? Um, by which I mean political power in particular, right? So if you're that union you know, union or ex union person in Ohio worker in
2: Ohio, sure.
1: Right. A, you have less money because of deindustrialization. But B, like, you may not have a union job anymore, or your union maybe have less membership, maybe less powerful, may have less pull. All true. Now my concern would be, but, but talk me out of it. Like my concern would be okay, we start giving that person twelve thousand dollars a year as a guaranteed Income, great. Does that? I'm concerned that that doesn't fix the power issue, and that there's other problems in their life. I'm, I'm going to pitch this to you, schools Anna. and this and that that will not just be fixed by them having more cash in it. There. But there's some issues that will be, but their lack of power will still result in, and that we, and that it might reduce the urgency of dealing really with what feels like the you. fundamental issue. This
2: is really important to me. So number one, I'm not against uh, other things that help improve that person's situation. You know, I'm for giving them money and I'm for easing, uh, you know, the ability for people to, to form unions and collectively bargain. Like I'm for uh, ways to tape, pay teachers more. Like to, to me, like you can be for all these things because they're all the right things to do. But here's the bigger thing. Is that community more empowered to actually be able to stand in line and vote to actually resist Mm -hmm. employer exploitation to actually like maybe make some investments in their schools or volunteer their time for their kids Mm -hmm. at the
1: PTA or like the whatnot. If
2: they have that money in their pocket. So you're also paying them to,
1: to be civic. You're you're giving them the kind of space in their life to be civic. Yes.
2: Like, right now, you know, if you say to someone who, like, and I've been to these, you have too, I'm sure, like, you're with this person in Ohio, and you're like, hey, get out and vote. Like, they look at you, and they're, they're like, this does not fucking matter to me at all. Like, my vote does not matter. Uh, and they have, in many cases, like, decades of experience telling them just that, you know? And then there are people that, like, will never come near it um, because... Uh, they're completely in despair or, you know, like like they're, it, they're completely disconnected from civic society. Um, and that to me is not uh, extraordinary anymore. And it's not even irrational. That's the toughest part, Anna. You can't be like, hey, if you just get your ass in and vote, we're gonna fix everything. It's like, actually, not really. Like they could come and vote and like, you know, their person just gets co-opted or their person just one vote in like a chorus or their person, lo- like, like it, it's um, like, like the power dynamics are so broken. Um, And then selling to them that like, hey, this vote's going to do it for you. If you can just get that person into city council or school board or da-da-da. It's like, you know, that's not true. (laughs) Like, you know that these systems, when the person gets there, like, even if they're good, they're going to get like their hands cuffed and like going to be beholden to some assholes. And then they'll be outvoted by like, you know, that they're like, you know, crazy uh, cohort on like, the city council or school board or state legislature or U.S. Congress or whatever it happens to be, uh, the, the, the restoration of their ability to make better choices is contingent upon them actually having like the means to, to yeah. survive and be able to decide what to do with six hours of their time. Like, it's ridiculous right now to go to someone who's, like, destitute and, like, struggling and can't make ends meet and be like, you know what I want you to do now? I want you to volunteer. I want you to vote. I want you to spend this time. It's like, like, like a lot more and more Americans are responding with a big fuck you. (laughs) Like, it says, you know, and so, like, to me, the big step, if you get money in those people's hands, it gets their head up. And, And to use an international reference that people know, it's like, if you look at countries that have more robust social benefits, like, Civic engagement goes up, protests go up, like, you know, like various things happen where if you have some degree of liberty, then it, it's not a sedative. It's the a stimulant. Sale to the
1: right. Give people free money and then they'll protest more, you know.
2: Well, I'm just <laughs> saying it's
1: like give give people money and they'll
2: have actual like energy and yeah, visibility no, I, and the ability I, I, to participate.
1: I'm, I'm convinced by that. I think part of where I had the... You know, before you were selling it, the people I most heard in interviews, well, particularly I was reporting the book selling this, were like Silicon Valley venture capitalists, whose reasons are very different from yours, who didn't say any of the things you just said. And, and if I had to summarize what I heard from a lot of them, it was essentially, let's bribe people not to revolt, right? The future well, is going to be so- bad for these people. We want a future in which tech will be left alone, won't be regulated, in which monopoly will be able to function with impunity, in which there will be wealth taxes, there won't be higher taxes on capital gains and, and high incomes. We want that future. And so let's concede. For this, I'm, I'm just talking about from their point of view, like what is a way that we can get on board with an efficiently distributed social program that will be insurance, that kind of like libertarian insurance and like and protect our ability to keep being us. And I know you come at it from a very different place, but that's that was the intersection that that always worried me. But I, but I, but I but I but I hear what you're saying. And I think and I I'm not sure maybe I didn't hear it. I'm not sure I heard you talk about this in the in the campaign as much, which is like this notion of if you expect people to be civic, you need to you need to like buy them space you need to show you you actually give a shit
2: about them because like right now we're just paying lip service it's like hey great news you're an american you can vote it's like we're not going to invest in you your neighborhood your family or schools in any way and if we do invest in them we're going to make it ridiculously paternalistic and like bludgeon the shit out of you and just make you feel like a a less than human being at every step of the way Um, but we love you and value and care about you Like, like the whole thing you know, one of the things I, I compare it to, on it's like, when you show up to a company, you know, within like a day, whether that company gives a shit about you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like that, like that, there's yeah. like are companies where they and then even when they do invest and do all the right things, some of it's misplaced and dumb, but you can at least tell like, okay, they're kind of trying. It's like, like this culture means that they have to at least show uh, that they're investing something in their people. Um, In terms of like the citizenship experience right now, there are many people that do not feel genuinely that we are investing in them and they're not wrong. Like like this would be the biggest reversal of that. One of the things I campaigned on was saying, uh, you know, imagine a country where you could look your kids in the eye and say your country loves you, your country values you and your country will invest in you and your future. Like, I mean, does that kid actually take civic engagement and voting much more seriously? Uh, you know, I, I think so. And, you know, it's like, it, because then the government would be doing something concrete for them that they could understand. And, you know, and, and it's very hard to argue with. It's one of the reasons why I, I ran on it was like, look, like it's hard to demonize cash. <laughs> you know? yeah. Like It's hard to look at it and say, this cash is gonna hurt you. Like it's, it's one way that we can get this thing done And then make the changes like I think it supercharges our ability to make the other changes because it ends up activating people and activates uh, folks who, who can then start rolling back some of the things that you're describing.
0: Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends or just even to master new skill. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today.
1: So I'm curious, like, you know, you were saying there has been this war, the war on normal people, as you call it, for, for decades. Um, but we are, it is what it is now. We are where we are. And the question is, what are the remedies now? And, you know, so I advocate for things like uh, wealth tax. You know, I, I would, by the way, your your um, your comrades, Bernie and Elizabeth, I actually think their wealth taxes didn't go far enough. Uh, you know, not even Bernie's, you know, would have slowed the rate of billionaires getting richer
2: it, it would have smoothed the derivative of the derivative Correct. <laughs> so, Correct. Yeah, I, I understand of course you would say that
1: um, that's why you got the hat so you know this this notion of an erosive wealth tax I think is something we should be talking about you know some of the things you mentioned capital gains uh, higher tax on extreme incomes AOC talked about going back to 70% on 10 million or more those kinds of things but I have a more basic question um, or thing I'd like to run by you and since you were in this system, which is, it seems to me, one of the big frustrations for me is that when it comes to these kinds of transformational changes, which whether it's the one you're talking about, the ones I'm talking about, I, to put it very simply, have a feeling, a fear, that Democrats don't know how to talk, right? That Republicans, if you think about what Republicans do, they take policies that are bad for most people That actually make that war on normal people they take those policies
2: and And they package them
1: really they package them so well and it's like it's like sports right it's like it's like when you're practicing for a sport you actually try challenges that are way harder than the actual sport like you keep shooting hoops from you know half court and then like maybe you'll be able to make a three pointer in the actual game like i feel the republicans have set themselves up for this amazing athletic challenge which is we are committed to policies that You know, only benefit the 1%. And so our athleticism as Republicans in marketing, selling those, tickling the reptile brain, using language, getting into people's heads, appealing to their aspirations, their hopes, their fears. I feel their game is on point, right? Because for them to win, they literally have to multiply by 51 times, a 51 multiple, the number of people who support a policy, you know, for the number of people who, a policy would benefit to the number of people who support it, right? And that athleticism that results from that challenge is amazing. It's awful, but it's amazing. And I, to com- continue this metaphor, I feel like Democrats are often in this position, whether it's healthcare, whatever the specific proposals, where there's almost this like kind of intellectual flabbiness that sets in, where like you got policies that would clearly benefit. 99% of people, people. or yeah. 65% of people or 70% of people, almost every yeah. major policy we're talking about here, right? Many of them in the nineties, maybe some, we could be more modest and say 70, or 80% of people. And I almost feel there's this laziness or lack of athleticism that's set in where Democrats are unable to take things that would make 90% of people's lives better and sell them to 51% of people, whereas Republicans are able to take things that make 1% of people's lives better and sell them to 51% of people. And to me, a lot of it, as someone who thinks about language, who's, who's my only real you know, craft is language, output is language. Um, I think a lot about how incapable Democrat, the Democratic Party, not all Democrats, but the democratic party as an institution and many democrats are when it comes to to tickling the reptile brain giving people simple ideas they can understand not talking about block grants i wonder what your experience of that is being inside the machinery
2: you have hit on a very very powerful problem a powerful idea and a very big problem and it's something that you and i need to help democrats with uh so here's the deal i show up i'm running for president you know i'm like an entrepreneur. Um, I think in a certain way, I talk in a certain way. uh, And it turns out that the language I'm using is not the political language that I'm supposed to be using at at all. And I was like, oh, this is the way I I think and talk. Um, And and so what happened to me, and, and this is an example of why, you know, for example, like when you like saw my arguing for universal basic income, like you weren't sold, is that what I belatedly realized, Anand, is that like my natural means of delivering these ideas or arguing for them, like actually just was like a different variety of symbol, like a different variety of appeal. It's like, it's almost like the no appeal is <laughs> it's like, it's like its own appeal. Uh, and then you had folks who'd been in the game for a long time who were incredibly fluent in like their versions of political language. And there's this giant class of folks, you're probably friends with some of them, um, that are like DC consultants who are saying, it's like, hey, argue it this way, argue it this way, and it we'll inflame this particular group, And so you end up with these uh, speeches that end up just becoming essentially like a check the box being like, I'm now going to say this and it's going to excite women. I'm going to say this and it's going to excite people who care about climate change. I'm going to say this. And it's like uh, and and then you have the rights version of the same things. It's like, you know, we're going to appeal to loyalty and patriotism and order and uh, like uh, hierarchy and nostalgia or like whatever the heck the, the package of things is. Um, And what you're saying right now is so important is like that their package of appeals is more potent than Democrats to more human beings who reside in this country, also also known as as voters. Uh, And this is a very dangerous thing. Uh, And then you go to the folks who are arguing for some of the policies that you and I are discussing, which I completely advocate for and agree with. And they're arguing for it in language that's never gonna rise past a certain level of support. It's like, they're gonna get like a very hardcore, uh, they're gonna get a hardcore, whatever the number is, 34%, 28%, like 40%. And, and then, and you know, there's this is growing group of people that are like, what the heck is going on? Why can't we win 51% of people over? And, and so what do we do? Like You know, like one thing is to say to folks, who are on a particular side, arguing for Medicare for all or or other things, um, to be like, look, like maybe we need to try and take lessons from uh, some of the appeals they're making um, that will. And so one of the things I said on the debate stage was like, look, you know, one of the the best sell for fixing healthcare in this country is like right now, it's terrible for anyone who wants to start a business, switch jobs, do anything different. It's like giant job lock, it's holding us all in place. Like, if you want dynamism and small businesses to flourish, then we need to get healthcare like, away from jobs. Um, now, I-, I think that's 100% accurate. And there are many, many Republicans who are small business owners. One of the things that pains me the most, Anand, is that I love small business owners. I think small business owners are, are like the lifeblood of many uh, communities. And more small business owners are Republicans in part I think because Democrats are just like
1: talking about it wrong correct <laughs> <You know? laughs> like it, it, it kills me because like, just, I, like I just know, on just on that a of... like a couple things on that just on that point, so important. So like it, I think of republic if you if you hired Republican strategists to like help Democrats sell universal health care, right? Medicare for all, let's say, or something like that um, I think you'd hear, to, to, to weaponize what, the insight you just said, right? There's a million reasons. I mean, the reason I actually support Medicare for All is not the reason you just said it's one of them, but it's I, I'm more personally inclined to the human rights nature of it, having this not be a thing that people worry about, you know, but but as you say, what you just said is an excellent target for Republicans, right, who, who like small business. Now, to me, what a Republican strategist would do here would take your idea and, and they would call employer-based healthcare that entire system which is our system call it donald trump's small business tax right i'm just giving you a you know right yeah no they're great at naming things right they're, like they're, like they're donald trump's new awesome. business tax right because anybody starting a new business is effectively paying a tax by having to lose their health care right and suddenly you've now shifted the dynamic or you know you take the wealth tax right? And you call it the Patriots tax. I mean, I, like, some of this stuff is trivial, and some of it, it goes deeper, right? But but look how well the right did by calling late term abortion, partial birth abortion, like look how well they did by calling the estate tax, the death tax. So there's kind of the language stuff, first of all. Um have, have you read
2: Jonathan hates uh, a righteous mind, right? Yeah, yeah. anyway, so he talks about the that they appeal to more core values than uh, than Democrats do. Republicans do. You know,
1: like another argument, I've said this in speeches of mine, and I've seen like, people in the room think in a way that you know doesn't happen in an age of polarization every day. They say, you know, we should say about health care, we, we already got the people we've got. The issue is the people we don't have, right? And we have a sense of what some of those people's values are, right? They, they're not into health as a human right. That's not working. They're not into solidarity. They don't want to be like Scandinavia. Okay. So you got you got to first get that. You got to meet them where they are. You got to understand that, which I think Democrats often just don't want to do. Okay, that person may like a certain wh- where in that person's worldview do do they like solidarity? They don't like solidarity where you're coming from, which is health care. But where do they actually like solidarity? You know where they like it—the military. Where do they really like it? They like it in like wars, right? Oh, like band of brothers kind of thing, right? So why don't why don't you hear Democrats saying? When we sent our boys to Normandy, right? they didn't leave one person down on the battlefield if they could avoid it, right? They didn't want some new bride in Indiana not to know what happened to her husband. They ran back. They put themselves in danger. They picked... That's, that's what we do. That's who we are as Americans. And when I'm president, that's what we're going to do on the battlefield of healthcare, right? Just... I, I'm making this up. It doesn't even actually make sense. No, th-
2: it, no, it, it was genius. It took you 10 seconds to come up with it. And we need more people arguing along those lines, appealing to different cords and core values. Uh, so the healthcare is a human right, which I agree with. Um, you know, that's like the caring core value. Correct. Uh, and and then the Republicans have core values around loyalty and uh, sacredness and order um, that Democrats don't talk about
1: as much or don't talk about as effectively. By the way, sacredness, Uh, can I just say one thing on sacredness? Another like our current healthcare system turns your employer into God. You want to talk to Christians? Like you're in an employer based healthcare system. Your employer is playing a role in your life that only God should actually play, which is deciding whether you live or die, deciding whether you're healthy or sound. Do you want your employer to be God? That that's not an appeal. That's going to work on me. But that might work on some Christians.
2: Yes, I think that Democrats completely abandon—well, not completely, but largely abandoning any faith-based value arguments—is uh, not good. You know, it's like like you can say like, "Look, I don't believe what you believe," but <laughs> it's like right. you know, what I mean, like, like it, This is just these are just different ways. And Anna, this is one of the most fundamental lessons I got in learning for president. Was like I thought I was arguing for things that like most people, you know, like would regard as like quite progressive, uh, but because I was arguing them from my own perspective, uh, like I ended up having like a very different appeal. Um, and it, it blew my mind that the substance and the messaging were, um, were formed by each other to that extent. You know, like I I thought I'd end up being like the leftiest seeming guy in the world because I'm literally just trying to get rid of poverty and give everyone money. And I thought that would be like, wow, even Bernie didn't take it that far. <laughs> you know? but, 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 but instead, like I ended up being cast in this strange, different realm, um, in part because of just who I am. Like I have a particular approach and like different like a particular way I argued things. Uh, and so I ended up attracting folks who Found that line of argumentation appealing, or like you know, like like facts and figures of a certain way, or I um, wanna. And it was totally surprising to me. Like uh, you know, like I did not realize that that that's how this worked. Um, so because now that I've learned that, I completely affirm what you're saying, which is that we need to start trying to communicate for some of the same goals to different people in different ways that will actually speak to them.
1: And and I and I think, I would break that problem the blockages down into actually two different blockages which is a skill issue and a will issue so what you and i've been talking about right now until now is sort of the skill issue here like people democrats don't know how to do this often and don't know how to do the packaging genuinely right do not but there's a will issue which has to be talked about also which is i think the democratic party as a constellation is a victim of its own like high mindedness, its own sense of moral purpose, its own like very high levels of educational attainment. Um, I mean, you look at the education of everybody who was running, you and everybody else, right? And, uh, you know, I think Piketty had this line a couple of years ago, like about, you know, the Democrats becoming the Harvard Party or, you know, the kind of Brahmin Party. Um, it's not what you want. It's not what you want. And I think what's come with that is a kind of, however you say that thing, Mark Marquis of Queensbury rules about playing nice and playing noble and going you know, I, I am not sure Michelle Obama is correct about going high when they go low. I, I I I I think it depends on how they're going low and what the outcomes are, you know? And and so so when I think about and I actually think you achieve this with UBI. I think if you and I were walking down the street in Kentucky right now, I think people would stop you and know your one idea. They may not know anything else you said, but I think a lot of people walking down the street in Kentucky would recognize you and recognize that one idea, which I'm not sure they'd be able to do for Joe Biden. They'd recognize him. I'm not sure they'd be able to name one idea. So I think your UBI achieved the status that I'm about to describe, which is if you look at the wall, Trump's wall, obviously a fucking dumb idea in terms of like, should this idea be achieved? Okay. But now let's put that aside and look at it from a political analysis lens, right? You had three big anxieties in this country, which were well-documented, and Trump was particularly gifted at sensing, or his people were, right? Immigration, and more broadly, the threat of a browning country. Um, Terrorism, which is, again, another kind of threat from without that could strike at any moment. And economic dislocation, I'm not getting enough, other people must be getting something in one single word idea that turned out to be totally bullshit but in one single word idea the man was able to communicate something that everybody remembers people will remember 30 years from now that actually tickled the reptile brain on all three of those anxieties and that made them feel like protected from the world now they were wrong he was wrong But like, it's an example, if you talk about math, it's an example of like elegance, right? And I think the UBI idea, whether you like it or not, is, you know, one of its hallmarks is that it's a similar kind of elegance. Anybody, and there's a reason you probably said it at 1,000 instead of, you know, 1,356, right? Like you want, but I think in general, I mean, Elizabeth Warren said this to me before I interviewed, right before we went on stage in South by Southwest, she's like, we've got to be the party that stop uses using words like block grants. Like, who knows how to block grant even it? Like, and so how do you think about that notion of, you know, real policies are nuanced. How do you think about balancing that imperative for nuance and complexity and the fact that this is a big country that needs multifarious solutions? How do you think about balancing that with, like, elegance and simplicity and giving people something with a wall-like... Uh, you know, memorability and emotive force.
2: Well, it's one reason why I did center the campaign around an idea that the cleaning person in Iowa would recognize me for. it say, "Hey, like thousand bucks a month." I'd be like, "Yes." Uh, and the painful part on, and when you talk about the fear that the Democrats are becoming like the bookworm party or whatnot, is like when I was in Ohio or Iowa talking to a waitress or a truck driver they had a very, very visceral negative reaction to even the word Democrat. It's like, hey, I'm running for president. Oh, like, which party? Democrat. Like, oh, like, it'd be like I I just said that I was, like, from, like, the, you know, vermin party or, like, the, da da. like... And and, and what do you think that was? Because... Oh, so uh, I, I think it's both things. I mean, you know, maybe they watch a lot of Fox News and have like particular ideas presented to them about Democratic priorities. But I think that the Democratic Party really has lost its ability to speak to working class concerns in a way that does not seem somehow um, patronizing, condescending, urban centered, like something, because, you know, a lot of the environments I was in were not big cities. And so the, the danger for Democrats really is that they become the Um, the bookworm party, the urban party, and then you lose more and more um, folks in uh, small towns around the country where they won't even listen to you. Like uh, it's, and and that was like a really tough experience because I always assumed the Democrats were for working class people like that trucker, that waitress. It's like, why would you be like so uh, disgusted with the Democratic Party? Uh, and, And... uh, that's one of the things that I was hoping that we could try and steer the party away from, which may or may not be happening now. Uh, but it's around the sort of simple appeal. Of what you're talking about It's like like I, I'm not going to talk about some other shit that might you know like end up frankly just like casting people into different cultural groups or tribes. It's like I'm going to talk about a thousand bucks a month. Like give it to everyone, uh, and I'm genuinely more interested in that too because I'm more interested in those solutions rather than like like who's going to win our totemic struggle of the day. You know what I mean? It's like, like, who cares, really? I mean, the world's going to shit. Like, we can all see it. Like, you know, how are we going to rebuild this country in a a genuine, effective way? Uh, And so this, to me, like a new foundation that actually uh, starts rejuvenating small towns around the country, which is what, you know, putting this money into people's hands um, would do uh, on many fronts. Uh, But you're right. Like, if we could try and reframe Medicare for all in some way that, that was even simpler than that, uh, I'd be all for it. Instead of build a wall, we'd have to think about what the new big ideas are that would universally translate.
1: You know, I, I thought of this so often during the campaign. Um, you had people advocating for Medicare for All and the progressive wing of the party. And it occurred to me, as far as I know, I could be wrong, but as far as I know, no one bothered to make a video, which would cost a couple thousand dollars, illustrating what healthcare would look like, feel like, be like, how it would work to get cared for in the new world they proposed. So you're proposing Medicare for all. I think it's the right idea. I, I also think, unlike a lot of people who advocate for it, the people who are scared of it are not crazy or wrong. It is a pretty big shift. There would be mistakes. There would be glitches. Some people actually may get into a worse situation temporarily. Like, we got to be real about that stuff, but it's the right thing. But when you are taking insurance away from lots of people and replacing it and doing this massive societal transformation of, you know, a massive slur of the economy, helping people visualize it is something that is so obvious to me, right? So why wasn't there a video from Bernie or Elizabeth, anybody else, where you see someone getting sick, Scene one. Scene two, they go to a clinic. Right? They get great care. People are nice. Scene three, they're walking out. They ask, you know, it's new. It's month month two of the implementation. They ask where they should pay or their insurance card. And they're like, no. Courtesy of the United States of America. Like, thank you so much for being a citizen. You know, whatever, whatever right? That that would have just maybe helped some people. Just, and this is the kind of thing I'm talking about where not having an understanding of where that waitress or truck driver is psychologically what their fears are what their anxiety how they see not even having that information available because you're allowed you've allowed yourself to become the harvard party over time is so profoundly dangerous and is so wasteful particularly when you have policies the whole litany of policies that would make all those people you're talking about all their lives better
2: So I, I did not dwell that much on my identity throughout my campaign. Um, but I think that there's something to be said about having like a different take on some of these issues that isn't from one of like these traditional camps, if you will. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. I came in and talking about some of these problems and solutions in, in a way that, again, was just natural to me and it's just who I was. Um, but then it, it kind of took some of the venom out uh, because instead of my being like, hey, you know, like these people to blame, throw rocks at them or these people to blame them, I was just like trying to focus on a fix. And, what and how do you think your identity in plays of, like, into vision? that? Well, I, I think part, part is like I'm the son of immigrants. So like a lot of people talk about how their family goes back like, uh, you know, very, very far. It's like my family just got here, you know, like it's <laughs> right. like, like around it being like, what? Like, this is a problem. Okay, let, let's do something about that. And then,
1: so there, there was like this... Um, you're not invested yeah, this- in all the reasons to not fix it.
2: Yeah. Like, I don't know, you know, and, and there, there was like this lack of judgment associated uh, for, for me, too, where it's like, you know, like has, has like some very, very dark fucked up shit happened in American history to like various people and various groups because of identity. Like 100 percent. Yes. But, you know, um, but I'm not here to like, you know, like I'm, I'm going to try and. Like uh, just like address what we can address here in 2019 or 2020 or whatever it is, whether it's healthcare and alleviate poverty, like do things that are, um, to me, long overdue, uh, but package in a way that isn't necessarily um, like freighted. Uh, I I suppose I think there were there were I think there was that was also built into my campaign in a way I didn't realize, um, and the way you're describing how we can try and package some of these ideas it it is fascinating to me on how like the message and the messenger get like wrapped up in each other um in this space like it's funny it's like we almost need like a different sort of human to be delivering some of these messages um and then our politics gets bound up with like who the messenger is at all times and then like the political class descends on it being like oh You know, we have a black candidate in like this community, like doing this. And then like that, then that becomes like the, like a big part of the story. And in my case, like in in my opinion, there was no story around the Asian American candidate making this case because Asian Americans just aren't supposed to be part of this particular story. So that there was like a, there was like a giant, like collective shrug <laughs> from like the, the media or political class because it was like well this
1: is not part of our pre big narrative so uh, best to ignore it's really interesting you know I my my experience from a just as a writer is, is a little bit different I mean maybe similar maybe different which is I feel like part of the you know that we there's so much talk about Indian Americans um, Asian Americans in general in many cases Serving, playing this role of the model minority and and the ways in which our communities um, have often been used, the stories of our communities, first of all, misleading stories because there's actually a lot of poor Indian Americans and a lot of poor Chinese American. It's not a, these are not like monolithically successful communities, but they're above average successful in many indicators. But the ways in which these communities have been and the stories of them have been exploited, to justify, uh, you know, austerity and lack of compassion for other communities, right? Like, uh, the, the the crudest version is like, and people have, you know, said this openly, like, if Indian Americans can achieve what they have in America, then what excuses do African Americans have or others? And this kind of awful reasoning that people engage in. Um, and so for me, a lot of my coming to consciousness around the issues we've been talking about is getting to a place of being comfortable, not playing the role that I'm supposed to play because of my identity. And I don't know if you feel that also, but to me, part of the role I'm supposed to play as a as an Indian American who's been, whose family has been fortunate in America, who's been personally fortunate, is like, you're supposed to shut up about all the other stuff, right? Like, because you got let through, like you got led into the good part of the nightclub. And why would you it, complain? It, it's one reason why you're,
2: uh, your arc from that lunch in Aspen to now I, I think is so important and awesome uh, I, I, I actually think that like, the part you're supposed to play is the person who's uh, able to point out the things that for whatever reason other people who have been on the inside aren't willing to talk
1: about so for what it's worth I think that's actually your role but, uh, I, I, and I feel that very strongly now too and I will still when I tweet some of these things people in India In the global world that is Twitter, people in India will be like, dude, what are you doing? Like your family went over there, like you've benefited from America. Like, why are you criticizing it? Of course, white people say that to me all the time and tell me to go back to my country. But even people in India are like, why are you complaining about that system? It's so much better than our system. You all went over there. And I think part of what I came to is if you are lucky enough to have this system work for you, um, what you should do is not assume you're the rule. But assume until proven otherwise that you're the exception. And look at the ways in which this country is not serving, but frankly has never served very large numbers and, and communities of people. Um and it took me time to kind of see that as you say, the actual um logical endpoint of my family's immigration journey and good fortune is to um, talk about the deficiencies um, of the country they found. And, and this is very important, to treat the centuries-long debts of this country and uh, depredations of this country as my personal problem and not... As something that happened before my time, you know, there was this fascinating notion in in debate in Germany a few years ago, where you had, um, you had these protests, I forgot the larger issue they were, they were protesting, and you started to have what in Germany, there's obviously particularly sensitivity around, which is chance of Jews go home or similar Anti-Semitic chants at these protests in Germany, and you know, hate speech of this kind is actually illegal in Germany because of its history. But what emerged in this particular case a few years ago is that a lot of people doing the chanting were not white neo-Nazis, but were relatively new Muslim immigrants. Um, small numbers of them, hardly representative. Of the, but but the people who happened to be doing these chants, still, at this particular yeah, thing, were coming at it from a you know a different history, a non-German history of anti-Semitism. And so there was this debate in Germany that unfolded of like, well, these guys just got here. Like should they be, you know, bound, like they didn't murder Jews in the Holocaust. Like should they be bound by the same weight of history? Should they be judged by the same state? And and this guy wrote this really powerful piece. I think it was a journalist. A very powerful piece saying the only way we can do this is from the moment you come to this country, Germany in that case, whether you've been here a long time or whether you're immigrating now, whether you're a refugee. In some ways, you assume the assets and the debts of that society, right? You don't get to just start at the moment Fresh. you're starting, and that even you know. Refugees arriving here from the most precarious situations, for better or worse, assume the historical debts of Germany. They're you are now part of. It wasn't like certain people only. And I thought that was a very powerful argument. I think it it taught me something just about immigrant people more generally.
2: Well, it, it's something that I felt very strongly. Uh, where my parents came here, create a better life for me and my brother. I grew up in imbibing American culture and I I love this country and I think that the act to improve it is an act of patriotism uh, which is what you've been doing and exercising like I don't see your critique as like somehow like bad I mean it's good for the country it's like you need someone to point out like hey things have been going wrong in a a very serious way Uh, and um, you're a parent I'm a parent I mean our kids are growing up in this country like we you know we have to do what we can for this land of ours uh, so I completely agree with you that there's like an inheritance in part because I, at least from my perspective, it's like, I owe this country so much that if I can give back in some way, then like, I'll be, uh, a hundred percent willing to, to do all I can, uh, because my parents bet on this country, like, you know defines who i am and has defined all of the great things in my life my wife my kids uh in like uh, i i'll say this and i think this is true for you too it's like i took the ideals of this country to heart growing up you know it's like you you learn all these things about america growing up and then you find that you know there are real problems and then to me my running for president was like okay we can fix these problems and it's like, uh, it, it's not like, let's like, I mean, we don't have a choice really, cause we're all here. We have to do all we can. Um, so I, I see your, your actions, your writings, your behaviors, and really like a, as deeply patriotic. I'm, I like to me, anyone who doesn't see that uh, is mistaken.
1: Well, thank you. That's, th- this is why I refuse to go back to my country of, uh, Cleveland, Ohio, because I, you know, the d- dissent is patriotic as they say. And, 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 I think, you know, though we work in different ways, I think what we share is a sense that, um, you know, if, uh, if a fortunate uh, Asian-American young man is expected to primarily show up with gratitude, uh, a kind of silent gratitude, uh, I think in our own ways, we've rejected that as the sole posture or the dominant posture. Um, I am grateful but uh, I'm now more conscious than than ever maybe more conscious than I was you know growing up um, about all the people in this country my family chose that that are not um, that have never availed of, of this kind of fortunate story
3: well I,
2: I, it's one of the reasons why I think that our conversation around how we can help frame these ideas in different ways is so important, and because like, I think that this country needs us to try and frame some of the big solutions in ways that are more translatable to more people. I did not realize setting out that that was going to be something that, like I, I thought that I could lend a hand to, to, but now I believe it. And it's even more true for you because you're more of a crafter of words than I am. You know, you're, you're, like, a, a real, you're like a real person who, uh, grapples with ideas uh, as your your core passion and job in a way that like I, I'm more of a blunt instrument <laughs> like, like, like a good idea like a good idea and I'm like the blunt right, force of make math make this <laughs> yes like let's go make this shit happen like what do I need to do run for president what are the rules okay like yeah. uh, let, let's go do it so if anyone can help frame some of these ideas in different terms uh, so that we can get more people on board it's you
1: well, um, I think uh, we have a lot of work to do.
2: We have a lot of work to do. Anand, this was so much fun. Like I would, we'll, I know this, you know, at this point we, we were um, at the tail end of this conversation, but like I enjoyed this so much. We should do this all the time because like, I feel like I would just learn so much. Uh, and, uh, you know, hopefully you enjoyed it half as much as I did.
1: This is great. Haven't had such a good conversation, in part because of the pandemic, but also because this is a really great conversation in a very long time. So thank you so much for uh, for for spending uh, spending the time. You kidding?
2: Thank you, man. All the best to you and your family, and hopefully we'll see each other in person, uh, uh, you know, as opposed to the Zoom.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Stay safe, man.